Hello and welcome back to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Sammy, when you say welcome back, what exactly do you mean? I mean, well, we were on a quick one-week vacation. Ben, you got to travel uh, all the way to Europe, the, the wonderful land of Euro, and I went uh, a little bit further south to Costa Rica, although that wasn't a vacation at all. Sammy's not allowed to take vacation. He signed a very restrictive contract when he entered into his agreement for this podcast, and I think it doesn't expire until the year 2037. Is that right, Sammy? Yeah, some, I think it was 36. Nope, 37. There's, yep, a weird, that's it. there's a weird clause that if we get a moon colony before 2037, Sammy has the option to move to the moon and do the podcast from there. But uh, I'm not holding my breath. Although you should probably hold your breath on the moon. I, I don't have faith that the broadband will be good enough to do this podcast. It'll, it'll be laser band by then. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the laser band. Now, if this is the first time you're listening to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast, let me reassure you, this is not what we talk about for the next 40 minutes or so. Uh, ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. You can find my work at autoguide.com. And Ben, well, you can find his work almost anywhere you love to read about cars. Ben, what is one of the latest publications that's been featured with your byline? You can find me at Driving Line, at Automobile Magazine, and if you go to newsstands now, the Euro issue of Super Street is out there, and I have the cover story this month. Very, very cool. Are you ready to talk about some cars today? I was born ready to talk about cars today, Sammy. That's awkward. Like, so you, you were born, and they're like, this kid's not ready to talk about cars today. Mm-hmm. But in July 2019... That's this time. Not nearly as awkward as trying to do this podcast on the moon, so keep that in mind. <laughs> Next time you want to crack wise. Okay, so let me let me get straight to the point. I was in Costa Rica with my good friends at Lexus who are celebrating their 30th anniversary or birthday, one or the other. When um, you say good friends at Lexus, are they good friends like you and I are good friends when you do the intro, or are they good friends like some other way? They're the sort of good friends that would invite me to Costa Rica to drive their latest version, the latest version of the Lexus RX, as well as all their other really neat cars, as well as drive some first generation products um, that are 30 years old, which is pretty cool. So did they ship them all down there or were they sourced from there or how did that work? Oh, yeah. These are definitely like museum piece or, or items from the Toyota and Lexus Museum. They are definitely um, not co- like local Costa Rican vehicles, but some of them I think have been uh, sourced locally. It's a mix and match. But you know what? They were also explaining that some of the cars they didn't even have their own version of or they wanted to get a, a more a more used version of the vehicle. So they went and bought other, other vehicles that are on the market. So some of the cars that we drove had well over 100,000 miles on them um, and, and we still got to drive them. And, and what, what happens to those when they're done? Like do they just – set them on fire or on a barge or like <laughs> that's a good question i wonder i i didn't really think about whether they're bringing them back to the united states or or if they're going to leave them um in costa rica to sell to somebody there but like if, if you I buy a five thousand dollar lexus ls and then mm-hmm. spend five thousand dollars shipping it to costa rica and then shipping it back just seemed like a fiscal fiscally responsible right. thing to do I agree with you. I uh, I definitely agree with you. But I gotta I gotta tell you that these Lexus vehicles, after all this time, are in such are, are such interesting condition and, and are are still really good to drive. And I was I was definitely impressed by this. And I will admit that I have my own um, kind of experience with with older Lexuses, but not as old as some of these. So one of the one, let me let me just 
I'll, I'll speak from personal experience. My parents actually have a 2008 Lexus RX hybrid. And, brag. and this one has well over 100,000 miles on it. Um, and it still works really, really well. What always surprises me is that every time I jump into this vehicle, I am really impressed at how well the car feels to this day after all of that, um, after all that time on the road. And I, I've always wondered if it was just because it was just due to good maintenance or if just there's something baked into the, the sheet metal of, a, of, a, of an old Lexus that lets it stick around like this. Um, and, and it turns out that a lot of old Lexuses just feel like this. They feel better than some new cars. And I, and I'm, I'm absolutely serious when I say this, that the, the way that they, they just feel buttoned together really well with a limited amount of squeaks and rattles for a car that's 10, 20 or, or nearly 30 years old is impressive. So which of the, which of the cars did you drive that made the biggest impression on you? Okay, so I drove a 1990 Lexus LS 400, which was uh, diamond white. That's what they described it. And it was a very spacious, very large um, sedan. And this was the car that I think Lexus launched with back in, in, I guess, 1989 or 1990. And uh, people were really worried when they, when they made this vehicle because they didn't think that you know Toyota had the chops to make uh, a luxury vehicle that can compete with the German um, automakers. And then what's worse is almost um, a very soon after they launched the Lexus LS, it was afflicted with a recall um, for the rear taillight of all things. And uh, they had to recall all 100% of these, of these vehicles. And people thought that would cripple the, the brand image of the Lexus, the new brand new Lexus nameplate. And as we know it today, I don't think that's happened. What, what ended up happening was they they got a 100% success rate on this Lexus recall, which is very rare, and um, they got each each customer received a handwritten or a hand signed letter um, apologizing them for the inconvenience that uh, is associated with this with this recall, which I think is pretty interesting. Well, yeah, so apparently the, the the customer appreciation went up much higher as a result of how they handled that recall. The other thing about that car being launched is it was a real wake up call for Mercedes and BMW in terms of quality. Uh, that suddenly there was this company that had taken the time to study its opponents over a very long period. I mean, I can't remember the code name for the project, but when Toyota started with the idea of building this ultimate luxury sedan and and a new division for it, it was, I think, six or seven years before the vehicle launched. And they went through uh, the business cases that used by Mercedes-Benz, BMW. Um, They also you know, dissected the cars, the S-Class, the 7 Series, what was out there at the time. And they did their best to one-up all of that in terms of quality because mm-hmm. they needed to make a huge first impression. So when that happened, it was it was a, a real surprise for the Europeans, which had never been challenged to this degree. And uh, it's similar in that era. It was, Japan was riding high on a very high yen. Um, they had a ton of latitude with, when it came to engineering. So you ended up with cars like the Lexus LS and the Acura NSX coming out at roughly the same time. And they were much better engineered versions of European heavyweights like from Ferrari and Mercedes-Benz. And mm-hmm. it, it was kind of like serving notice that, hey, we can uh, stand toe-to-toe with you and we can do it with a vehicle that will match you in performance and outlast you in longevity and also reduce the complexity that had been plaguing these cars that were being imported from Germany and Italy. 
it was it was really refreshing to drive this car too. Although I will admit that there are some d- distinct differences when driving an old car and a new car. And although you don't, I mean, wait, wait a minute, what? Yeah, I mean that's an obvious thing to say. Okay, I know that. <laughs> uh, but one of the things you'll notice immediately is that old cars they don't annoy you in the same way that new cars do, and that's that's legit. Okay, we drive cars. Um, that are loaded with safety features that ensure that we are, what, staying awake and and um, not crashing into things or staying in the right lanes or who knows what. And sometimes those systems go off unnecessarily um, or or they, they, they immediately pretend that you are not um, paying attention. And driving an old car, one from 1990, does not have that experience. And as a result, I think you end up feeling actually a little bit far, far more relaxed and, and at ease when driving um, one of these older vehicles. Sammy, did you feel a little lonely, though, that there wasn't an AI watching you that you couldn't make friends with while you were driving the LS? <laughs> no, I was okay with that. Um, this, this, uh, and the V8 was actually surprisingly good, and, and the transmission, I could not imagine that a transmission could be that smooth. They were very, um, they, I mean, Lexus should really be commended on its first effort right out of the gate, which was that LS400 that really delivered exactly um, a true luxury experience. So was that, the best, was that the best of the vehicles that you drove? I actually also enjoyed the, the next car that I drove, which was the SC400, which was their first um, coupe. And um, one of the things about the, the SC400 is that it uses pretty much the same engine as that um, LS400. It's in a smaller package, and it looks really sharp. I really like the design of the SC400, and I still think it, it's a good representation of, of solid 90s um, era luxury car design. Do you agree with me on that, or am I talking no, I think crazy? it's a good-looking car. I almost bought one back in the day. I ended up with a, a Lincoln Mark 8 instead. Uh, wow. But um, it's uh, the, the other interesting thing about that car is you could get it with a, a manual transmission, um, when mm-hmm. instead of the V8, and I can't remember was that V6 or the the six cylinder engine in it was that a uh, a one JZ or a two JZ? I'm not I'm not certain of the of the engine code. I'm sorry, Ben. I didn't study all of the Toyota engine codes as I should. But I was, do believe it was a, it's related it was a, to a two JZ because it's it's somewhat related to what's found in a Supra or um, the very popular uh, IS three hundred. Well, in Japan, I, I it was uh, sold as the Soarer, the Toyota right. Soarer. Right. So, yeah, which, which uh, does share some similarities with the, the with the uh, the Supra. While driving this one, um, I was impressed. I do think that um, back in the day, we, we or back in the sorry, nowadays we're we're what's the word I'm looking for? Spoiled when it comes to transmissions and how many gears they are and how much uh, acceleration is is available to us so um, so easily. Uh, I think that's some another big uh, discrepancy between some of these older cars, which had maybe five-speed transmissions um, back in the day. And, although they had a great, nice, smooth V8 engine, um, sometimes those those first ge- or second gears did not really get you up to speed in any considerable amount of time. Uh, and then I drove the RX 300, the very first-generation Lexus RX, which is kind of what set the brand um, in a very unique direction. It, after the RX launched, it quickly became the most popular product that Lexus made. And to this day, I think it's still one of the top selling products that they sell each year. I think it's slowly getting um, met by the Lexus NX, which is a slightly smaller crossover. But it's, got, it's really impressive 
to think way back in the 90s that Lexus was thinking about this crossover craze in a way that was successful. And they, they didn't really take that for granted. I mean, people were always thinking about big, boxy, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they, they kind of, I don't want to say fuel inefficient. I mean, I don't think like older cars, they were designed to just eat up gas. But the way the Lexus RX 300 was, was made, it seems so much more fuel friendly than some of its competitors. In, well, in, I, I mean, the, the, the RX came after, I mean, they didn't, they didn't really pioneer that segment. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the RX came, which was released in 1998. Um, it came after the M class, which is really the, the first of the SUVs which, in the luxury segment. I think I, I agree with you. I, I do believe that the two cars lined up incredibly well, but I don't imagine that the Lexus was designed, um, because from what I understand, the Lexus was legitimately built on a car platform, which I think is is not the case with the ML. Well, the Lexus was sold as a Toyota in Japan as the, as the Soarer. No, um, as the uh, Harrier. Sorry, the Harrier. I, sorry, I got Soarer on the brain. Oh, and I checked; yeah. it is a two JZ GE in okay. the uh, in the SC three hundred. Um, platform wise, I mean, I don't know. It's it's it, the the ML was was also a unibody vehicle as as far as I know, but. Uh, yeah, and and both of these vehicles, of course, came after the Outback, mm-hmm. which is the ultimate cheater crossover. <laughs> yeah, that's not fair. <laughs> the, I mean, I mean, just to to reiterate for our listeners, the Outback is a is a legacy wagon that uh, was put on stilts, like legitimately, because Subaru had to find a way to. I don't sell even think it, it has more ground clearance like, <laughs> in the first few models. I think it just had the plastic cladding, but I the could body be wrong. Cladding? Yeah, maybe. Um, the, the RX 300 did feel in, in a way uh, like an old vehicle. Um, I think it didn't age as well as some of the other cars that I drove. On the other hand, this is the one that, these are the ones that have been used and lived with for, for much, much more, uh, mileage. They've been driven much longer than the other two cars that I drove, which felt a little bit more, um, reserved and, and kept than this Lexus RX. And it's all important. I mean, this you can the, the most important thing about driving the Lexus RX was that you can see that lineage and that original identity in the Lexus RX when you drove the second generation one and what we've got now, which I think is about the fourth generation model. Um, and so the brand new 2020 Lexus RX gets a very mild refresh. Um, was that there? And that was there too, right? That was there. That's what I, I got to drive that both as a gas and a hybrid model. And I also got to drive um, a three-row version of the vehicle as well. I wouldn't okay. really recommend the three-row Lexus RX. That's I don't the RX think that, L, right? That's right. I don't think it's a it's a good use of the space. Um, it's not. It doesn't feel like a larger vehicle in any way or form. It just feels like a third row crammed in the trunk. And I don't think that's a. Be, I don't think that's the best way to, to very, experience. It's, it's very X5. <laughs> it's very yeah, absolutely. And the X5 is a big car, so. I just don't recommend that unless you're really, really in a pinch. Um, on the other hand, the Lexus RX is a really interesting car because every time I drive it, I come away impressed, but I always wonder what was it about this RX that made me go, that was really good. I, it bugs me because the Lexus RX does not have the most interesting powertrain. You have two options for, uh, for under the hood. One is a hybrid with a V6, and one is the non-hybrid augmented V6. And, they and both, how, what do you mean augmented? I mean non-gas, uh, non-electric equipped V6 okay. engine. So just a, a standard naturally aspirated V6 or that engine with a hybrid powertrain. And are both of these drivetrains the same as what you find in a Toyota Highlander? 
Um, I think so. I believe the Lexus uses a technology they called D4S, which is port indirect injection. Doesn't your, doesn't think, your uh, BRZ have that? Yeah, that's right. And I think um, the Toyota Tacoma has that now as well. Okay. So I think it's starting to make its way over to more and more Toyota products, but I don't think the Highlander has it just yet. I think the upcoming new generation Highlander will have this technology. Um, one of the interesting things that they pointed out was that while structurally the the body of the RX is the same as last year, they made a slight difference in the way they constructed that body. Now, you might have heard like all of this stuff about spot welding and, and how you can they, they work really how automakers work really hard to make a chassis more rigid and, and responsive. Um, but apparently when you add too much welding, the heat from welding can um, compromise the, the rigidity in the structure. So what Lexus has found to do is they invented something called or they're using something called laser screws. So oh my this is this is some high tech stuff. Wait, do they come from the moon too? Yes, of course. <laughs> and so, so what expensive. ends up happening is by using lasers to make these welds, the cooling time and the heat up time is so much quicker that they don't end up compromising the chassis. So as a result, they say that the um, new RX is is more responsive and has a stiffer chassis than before. Um, I can confirm the car does feel really good on the road in the way that a Lexus does. But as I mentioned before, it's just this funny thing. I, I should have mentioned more about the powertrain. We've got these two engines. The the naturally aspirated V6 makes 295 horsepower. The hybrid has a total output of 308. Doesn't sound great, does it? Doesn't sound anything really impressive. Well, Switching. I mean, it, it's not a heavy vehicle. It, it's 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 not meant to be quick, and those numbers seem fine to me. And I'm sure that the hybrid's torque is makes it feel somewhat lively, at least off the line. That's right. The the hybrid has that um how do you describe it it really fills in any sort of gaps in acceleration anytime there you you think that there isn't going to be a response it's right there i just don't think it's fair because other vehicles in the lexus rx's class although it's a bit of a tweener other german cars for example have high high output v6s or even some v8s in some categories and the lexus does not have such a such an option and even if you look at the acura mdx yeah, you've I believe got the hybrid nice. model of that is, is exceptionally quick. Yep, and I think that's it's just interesting that the Lexus RX doesn't want to play in that um, in that horsepower well, wars. I th- I think it's because this is a vehicle. It's it's the best selling Lexus mm-hmm. by a huge margin. It has it, a willing and enthusiastic audience of repeat buyers, and I think they just don't want to mess with that. Isn't that it? I mean, I find that so interesting. I think that's both a positive and a negative. I mean. I'm going to go from talking about the the powertrain to talking about the interior of the car, Ooh. which I think is one of its one of its um, um, positives in the way that how much space the car offers for its price point and how comfortable the car is to be in. On the other hand, I don't know if you've been paying attention to some of these new Lexus models that have been coming out lately. Um, let's talk about the Lexus UX or the. No, we, we, we did we did do a full episode on the UX. So going, looking back at some of these other new vehicles, the Lexus UX, the ES, the LC, and the LS, which are two flagship vehicles, so I know it's not fair to talk about the interiors of these two cars. But all of these cars have some very impressive interiors when it comes to um, the use of materials, the, delay, the layout, and um, just the, the switch gear and the fit and finish. It, they look like a like class leading, they're always impressive. And every time you get in one of these cars, even the UX, which I think is it's it's an insane thing to say that their entry level crossover looks this good. 
um, has an, an interior that that can actually impress um, staunch critics. And I'm disappointed that the Lexus RX has yet to make that jump. And I think it's because of what you just said. They have a very willing client uh, and, and fan base that do not want to mess with uh, and they don't want to mess with a good thing. But uh, have they improved anything about the interior of the RX that's worth talking about? Absolutely. It's the only thing worth talking about in the new Lexus RX. It has an updated infotainment system, which includes a touchscreen and Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support. Wait a minute. A touchscreen? Does that mean that the absolute nightmare of a touchpad slash mouse slash whatever is gone? No. Okay. So there's still a touchpad, Uh, but you don't have to use it all the time. Did Um, they relocate it to the center of the steering wheel? <laughs> no. So you can no. use your tongue? It's just as effective. <laughs> That's no, how they sensitive done it that is. Yet. I bet you could I bet you that that touchpad as it exists now is sensitive enough that I could blow on it with my mouth on the <laughs> steering wheel and and move the cursor. Um I think you might be onto something. But now you won't have to. That's what I love about it. Now you've got this uh Android Auto and Apple CarPlay supported um infotainment system. This is finally uh, happening, and I think this is a great step forward for the Lexus RX. And I can't wait to see what they actually what what comes up next with the next generation vehicle because this is just to me it's just like a what's the word I'm, an appetizer for what they can truly do with a next with a completely redone vehicle because we're seeing it in their other Lexus vehicles that you have an interior um, that that can really impress, and now you've got an infotainment system that means that it's a functional interior as well. well and I, I mean, think we, they, we've always known that they could build something great. They just chose not to. They just That's the most frustrating thing about Lexus and to a, an, another extent Toyota is that they have these amazing resources and yet we end up with garbage like uh, N-Form, which is what it's called, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, I would, I so. Garbage like N-Form. Um, and, and or a remote Toyota, touch. It was called remote, remote touch, touch. yeah. And, and a Toyota Tundra that hasn't changed in well over a decade. You know, it, It's clear right. that in some cases they just give up. And I never understood that. I don't. I don't get that philosophy from this company. See, that's the one. One of the interesting things when looking at um, the milestones event and them describing such passion that went into developing the brand from the from scratch and how much research they did and how they they spared no expense. A la um, John Hammond. John Hammond. They they really went to the next level with every single vehicle. They, in fact, they described that the first generation uh, Lexus LS had um, a very plush uh, – they wanted to give it a very plush um, carpet. And the mandate was that you could introduce no new – after they reached a certain stage in their development, you could introduce nothing without – nothing that would increase the weight by a certain um, – the threshold, and so whenever it reached that weight, you would have to give a presentation to the project leader, and he would he would say find a way to make it lighter. So they end up inventing this new way of making um, this carpet with like hollow fibers and stuff like that to cut the weight down. And you end up thinking just how how to, like how intensely they worked on some of these these early Lexus models, and you have to think, are they still do they still have that passion? when developing the the current ones that we have. No, clearly not. I mean, I'm not sure. Some models, yes, but I I think across the board, no. I think the Lex IS has been left to to rot on the vine right now, and uh, it's not getting any love. Well, that's that's the that's what I was saying. It's it's Toyota and Lexus. They seem content to just abandon entire segments Mm -hmm. for periods of time that seem completely arbitrary. Uh, the, 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 The Tacoma. 
didn't change for a very long time because it didn't have to. It didn't have any competitors. So that's somewhat understandable. The Tundra, on the other hand, Toyota could build the world's best pickup truck, and they choose not to. They could also build the world's best infotainment system, and they choose not to. And that's what's so frustrating. It's tough. Um, I'm, I'm, as always, I'm impressed with the Lexus RX because of its space, its fuel efficiency, and I think it's actually uh, its design, which is usually Lexus's like uh, it's it's a it's a deciding factor when you look at a Lexus and don't cringe in horror. Um, but at the same time, I think it looks far more distinct than some of its rivals, which look like blobby crossover messes, like say the Mercedes-Benz GLC or GLE, which don't look that. Um, special at all well speaking of blobby crossover messes um <laughs> i did not have as positive an experience with uh crossover as you did while i was traveling sammy okay so you were all the way over in uh the uk yes but i i didn't drive in the uk because london is not somewhere i would ever want to drive ever uh i ended up renting a vehicle in paris another place i don't ever recommend driving okay <laughs> i don't know if any of our listeners have ever driven in paris but uh I I've been, I've been there uh, last week or last week last month for for um, the Volkswagen event that we we discussed on a previous podcast. But we didn't actually drive in the city. We went to Hanover and drove from there. So I had witnessed some kind of crazy things, but it wasn't until I was behind the wheel that I realized there are no real rules when you drive in Paris. <laughs> the intersections are entirely arbitrary in terms of where you stop, where you go, and who has right of way. And when you get to the Arc de Triomphe, there's honestly probably 15 lanes in a roundabout where no one has priority, there's no rules, period, and people just drive straight out into the middle in like in, in motorcycles or I saw someone in a golf cart, um, tour buses are out there, and you just have to make do and hope no one hits you. It's absolutely insane. But the, the vehicle that I had to parse this madness with was a uh, 2019 Fiat 500X. <laughs> no, <laughs> and I got no. To, no. I got to the rental counter... And uh, I was excited because I had reserved like a Renault, whatever. And I was like, oh, here's a fun fun chance to drive something I never get a chance to drive at home, right? Hmm. And they're like, okay, so your vehicle's going to be a 500X. And I'm like, I will literally take anything else you have. <laughs> and I'm like, what is the that point is a of ter- reserving at a, at a rental place if they just make up a car and be like, yeah, it's the same thing? It's like every it's time. Like, I know. And, and, and it, I told them, I'm like, look. It's just a horrible vehicle. <laughs> and they're like, we know. It's <laughs> so Italian. You're it in France. Mid- yeah, it was the middle of the day. And the guy's like, look, like it, in the middle of the day, no one's doing returns. So our fleet is really limited. And uh, he had a uh, E350 or something, uh, Mercedes, but it would have been 100 euro more per day. Oh, my God. Yeah, which was close to double the price that I'd already paid. And I'm like, no, you know what? I'll just take the Fiat. Maybe it's not as bad as I remember, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't driven it in three or four years. And so I, I pick it up and I'll say the, the nice, I'll say a couple nice things about it. It was a really nice green color. What? Uh, it was green? It was green. It was like a metallic green, like dark. It looked good. Oh. Um, it had reasonable space, I guess, inside. <laughs> And uh, that ends the positive things I have to say about the Fiat. That's it. It was green. (laughs) Pretty much it. Uh, So the other other thing that got me sort of optimistic Mm -hmm. is it was a manual transmission, which you can't get in North America, I don't think. I think that they're all automatic, and I think that they all have the multi-air engine with the 9-speed, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can remember driving that nine speed or whatever the transmission is here on a road trip 
and I think I described its act- its activities as feeling like a mass of boa constrictors writhing under the floorboards, slowly suffocating your fuel economy. Like that was just – it was such an indecisive transmission and there was no power and it was just an unpleasant experience. And so I'm like, okay, this is a manual. It must be better. And And it was a diesel. Um, I don't know which one. There are three that are available, and they range between like 94 to 140 horsepower. Okay. I think it was the mid-grade one around 120 horses because I didn't die merging onto the highway, but <laughs> it wasn't quick. Like okay. It had like a 5,000 RPM red line, and it was just – it didn't really want to go quickly, uh, which is what I expected of a diesel. But, um, man, it, the vehicles – what really killed me with the car – was all of the little things that just kept constantly going wrong. Like, okay. um, yeah. I, was, I was trying to use cruise control, right? Mm-hmm. The speed limit in France, we were driving to to Normandy, and um, the speed limit in France on the larger highways is 130 kilometers an hour, which is about 80 miles per hour. And mm-hmm. if if you slowed, like, if you dropped five or six miles per hour off, and you tried to accelerate again with the buttons on the uh, steering wheel, it would kick you out of cruise control. that's it it would just turn itself off and you're like what the heck like you have no idea you don't know why it's happening then you have to reset your speed again so if it ever dropped below a certain threshold i had to hit the accelerator and reprogram cruise control i could not use resume i could not accelerate with the buttons half the time resume did nothing like i would just hit it (laughs) slowing down and i'm hitting it over and over and nothing was happening and it was like the cruise control just kicked off for no reason at all sometimes if i accelerated with the accelerator the cruise control would kick off okay (laughs) just like that oh you don't need me around anymore yeah constant random i like that it had spike it was like nah, we're not coming back on until you do it right the the automatic uh braking almost killed me one time because i was i was like there's this guy who like uh let's just say there was some road rage in paris and um he he cut me off and when he cut me off the car freaked out and it slammed on the brakes and there was a car right behind me and i was sure we were going to shorten it up and it didn't thankfully but um the the other thing that bothered me with the car was it. I don't normally ever use Android Auto. Right. I'm just not a big fan. But I thought, okay, I'll give it a chance because I need. I didn't bring my windshield mount for my phone, and I needed directions, right? Because I I'm not familiar with France, <laughs> and uh, so I was using it, and it was a constant battle to get the car to recognize it, and then it was a constant battle to get it to use the apps properly. Um, and when it was working, it worked okay. But getting to that point where it would actually acknowledge that you had plugged a phone in or that you were using a certain app was a huge hassle. And it just – it was a really un- unpleasant experience overall with the car on a long-distance trip. I probably put – I want we, we must have done 15 or 20 hours of driving in the car and uh, conservatively probably 800 miles and uh, very, very unpleasant overall. Um, so the thing is like I'm trying to remember – Driving the uh, 500X in with my own experience, with, as you said, with that really tragic nine-speed transmission, that was honestly the worst part of the car. But I also remember just the the, the layout and design of the interior was just really not that impressive. The materials no. were really were really weak. The visibility, for some reason, was just not that great either. Um, can my, you talk my, to me? Is there any improvement these days? Well, you know, my mom had a PT Cruiser. Back in, yeah. like, the early 2000s. And I swear, the exact same plastic uh, dash panel for the tri- for the passenger side is in the Fiat 500X. This, like, hard shell 
eggshell Easter egg brightly colored plastic that you hit with your fingers <laughs> and you're worried it's going to shatter. <laughs> right. That is still in that car. Okay. <laughs> I will you know there's one more thing I will say that was good about the car. I was probably getting between 40 and 45 miles per gallon with that diesel. Hey, that's not bad at all. That is not bad, which is good because fuel there is horrendously expensive, like (laughs) 1.65 euro per liter. So I'm going to work that out for you into into American uh, prices. So 1.65 times 3.778 means 6 euro 20 for a gallon. And it and the euro is pretty strong right now. <laughs> so if we go into to convert that six euro twenty per gallon into U.S. dollars, six ninety nine a gallon. Yo, okay. that is a lot of money to spend on fuel. Uh, and it the is. other thing that killed me in France was tolls, like constant tolls. I, I in in a given any given day, I spend fifty euro on tolls, and <laughs> I I'm not kidding. <laughs> And it was nickels and dimes. It was like one euro here, three euro seventy there, eight euro here for no apparent reason. It was uh, anyway. It made me glad to come back and not have to deal with that. I mean, the good news when driving a car like that is you just couldn't get a speeding ticket, right? Well, Could I mean, you? there's cameras everywhere, so who knows? Maybe I got like eighty speeding tickets. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine was in Switzerland recently, and he was there for like one day, and he got two speeding tickets, and one of them was for like three kilometers over the limit. Oh. Yeah, so that's not cool. But anyway, <laughs> Fiat 500X, uh, if you're thinking about renting that, don't rent that. It's just not not any kind of pleasant experience. Um, oh, and here's another fun thing. Yeah, uh, what, <laughs> At one point, for some reason, oh, uh, the, the, the DEF fluid in the vehicle, because it's a diesel, right? So you need mm-hmm. diesel exhaust fluid to work with the emission system. And uh, when that goes, when it gets low, a, a light comes up on the dash. I, I, I guess that that's what the light was because there was no owner's manual with the car because <laughs> why would a rental company give you that? So he pulled into a gas station. I don't station. want you to assume that you're the owner, so. Yeah, I, I pull into a gas station. I fill it with like, I think, a gallon of DEF. And then I, I look up online what the reset procedure is for the light. And, and you have to turn the ignition on but not the car on for up right. to two minutes. And then it's supposed I'm to I'm sorry, go what? Away. Yeah, you just sit there and then eventually it's supposed to go away. So we do that. It doesn't go away. <laughs> um, but what it does do is it disables the air conditioning system. <laughs> so we head back on the highway and like the AC's blowing, but it's it, it was very it was very hot in France. It was about 85, 90 degrees. They were just right. coming off a heat wave where it was over 100. And uh, the AC's it's sort of blowing, but like it's not cool. It's like it's like your fridge has been open all night and you reach into the fridge and it feels like kind of moist and damp. <laughs> Uh, and and unpleasant, but not yeah. cool. Like you wouldn't drink anything in that fridge, <laughs> and uh, we couldn't figure out what was going on. So finally, I, I I pulled over and I turned the car on and off, and it reset the air conditioning and it came back on. And this is well after the DEF light had gone off, which it, eventually it went off after like maybe twenty miles of driving. So not a strong performance overall <laughs> in terms Yeesh. of predi- like what if I hadn't been an auto journalist who is like maybe I need to reset the system, turn it on and off, close and open the door, and then see if it, if the AC comes back. <laughs> like, right? Yeah, that's uh, it's unintuitive. It's for a fan who's very engaged. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see uh, any cool? I mean, the cool thing about France is that they when you're or anywhere in Europe anywhere in Europe is that you see some really interesting um, cars and you see some differences in trends. I know when I was in uh, in Ireland, I always noticed that there were these um, 
opal insig I think they're called opal insignias, which are essentially Arbuic regals. And I, f I saw them almost everywhere, and I was impressed by how popular they were um, in both sedan and hatchback uh, or wagon form. Did you see anything that really struck you as different um, while you were in Europe? Oh, yeah, I saw all sorts of different things. But uh, the vehicle that I noticed the most often in France was the Cactus. The the Citroën. Yes. With the yes. funny little bumps on the side. Yeah, they had both the big daddy cactus, the normal C4 cactus, and the little baby cactus, which only has like a small row of bumps on the bottom. Uh, and, and another thing I thought was interesting was in France compared to London, in Paris versus London, there were far more old cars on the road, like classic cars. In London, they've introduced a, a number. I don't know if it's like this in Paris, but there's congestion charges. Which means in central London, I think it's 15 pounds a day just to be in the city. And I think that that might be keeping a number of – I'm sure it's keeping a large number of drivers out of the city. So the only cars you're seeing are professional cars or larger cars or you know taxis, that kind of thing. Or people who live in central London already who might think are exempt from the charge. Right. In an effort to combat uh, emissions or, or – worsening air quality, right? Like, yeah. I mean, there, there has to be a reason to all this. Yeah, there, there's that. Another thing I found was interesting was when I was in London, there were these uh, vans that were, they were rental vans and they were parked and they said, I, I'm i a cleaner van or I breathe cleaner and it's like, I burn gasoline and not diesel and it's like, we're making a difference and they were all Volkswagen vans. <laughs> <laughs> it was like big and there was like, it was a big sign on the back of the van but also this like bubble coming out of like a, like a speech bubble coming on the door like the driver's saying it <laughs> and i saw uh, a number a number of those vans so i thought that was ironic that is interesting weird um well how was your trip how was your trip in france uh otherwise oh it was great i was it was my father's first time in europe and i was really glad to be able to share that with him and we saw a lot of interesting things and uh, had a really great time great i'm glad to hear that um, it was a well-deserved vacation for yourself. You're a hardworking dude, and well, uh, you've been that. you've been on the podcast for like a hundred episodes. You deserve it for sure. <laughs> uh, ben, let's wrap this thing up. Let's uh, let's tell the folks where they can find our podcast and uh, how to get in touch with us. For sure, for think? sure. I just want to I just want to give a couple shout-outs. We had some people reach out to us. Uh, we asked a couple weeks ago about whether we should give up on Facebook. Um, and we had some people write to us. Uh, Garrett wrote to us and said, you know what? Uh, no one uses Facebook anymore. And it wouldn't be a problem if you guys ditched it. And he also – actually, Garrett also drives a 93 FD, which is amazing. Uh, and parked beside that in the driveway or garage. He has a 2019 E-Class 450 wagon. So Ooh. that is that is a fun automotive household and I'm in full support of that. Um, we also had uh, Brendan McWaid. He he wrote into us and said, "Yeah, get off that Facebook." And uh, he gave us a shout out because he found us on the Hooniverse podcast. So um, thanks to uh, Jeff and Chris for for talking talking us up over there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's also a fan of Sammy because he ended up buying an MKC, a Lincoln MKC as a daily driver. And part of that was your your responsibility, Sammy, because he liked your review. Oh, wow. Cool. So uh, that's that's good. We had some people reach out to us on Instagram, too. Thank you for asking uh, when the next podcast episode was coming out, guys. Uh, we did take that week off, and I know we haven't done that in over a year, I think. So yeah. uh, it, it might have been a little weird to not have that show up on Sunday. But uh, thanks so much for, for reaching out and uh, checking in with us. 
And if you are not familiar with the podcast and this is your first time listening, you can find us all over the place. You can find us at, you know, I was going to say Facebook, but it looks like we're going to move away from that. Oh, yeah. Forget about Facebook. Come so, straight to our website. Yeah. UnnamedAutomotivePodcast.com. You have links there to subscribe on whatever podcatcher you want to use. But if you want to go directly to your podcatcher, if you're using iTunes, Google Play Music, the new Google Podcast service, if you're using Spotify, all of those services, we're there. Just type in Unnamed Automotive Podcast. All 130 or almost 140 episodes are up there right now. And, uh, Sammy, if they wanted to reach out to us like these uh, listeners did earlier in the week and, and let us know what's up, how could they do that? Well, if they're on the website, they can just go to the contact form there. That will land in both of our inboxes very easily. Additionally, you can reach out to us on social media. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And Ben is found, well, he's mostly found on Instagram. You can find him at Hunting Benjamin. If you don't want to use social media, you can send us an email, benjamin at benjaminhunting.com. That's you, how you do it. It's that easy. You would be surprised how many people send us email because uh, I'm not the only one who's still using it. <laughs> that makes me feel good inside. Um, so, yeah, next week I'm going to be talking about a vehicle that we've talked about previously on the podcast, but in a different form. I'm driving the, uh, once again, BMW M850i, but this time it doesn't have a roof. It's the Cabriolet. And I will be playing around with the new Honda Passport, which Ooh. is a mini pilot um SUV crossover that they've got and I'm excited to see what that's got to offer because they want to make it more off-road focused and all that kind of jazz. And Sammy's super into off-roading. I don't know if you you guys know that about him but uh, I mean he's just knee-deep in mud all the time. All the time. I'm doing this in a mud pit right now. (laughs) It's the only way he'll do it. Well, good luck finding a mud pit on the moon, Sammy. (laughs) Thank you. I'll talk to you later, okay? And thanks for listening, guys. Bye-bye.